Before we get into this episode, I need to send warm thoughts to listeners Amanda, Tiffany, and Sue. Each of these amazing women have recently suffered a loss and could use some extra kindness right now. On a lighter note, I want to express my appreciation to Monica and Regan. If you follow the show on Facebook, they created new graphics for the headers on the discussion group and for our page. Much appreciated. So I had initially planned this episode to cover just one case, the unresolved murder of Jill Holzbach in 1991. However, developments in another case I've been following had me change gears, so this episode is structured differently from what you're used to. I've got two stories this week, and while they have a lot of differences, they share common threads. Both women were mothers. Each of them had only one child, a daughter. Both of these women were 29 years old, and both of them were murdered in places that should have been safe. So sit back, relax, and let's start with our first case, the murder of Kathleen Schlosser Krosnick. One of the things that I've done as a follower of all things murder-related in Michigan is I've joined a lot of Facebook groups. I've joined local groups from nearly every corner of the state. I'm looking for information on cases that I'm working on, or to learn about cases to put on the list to cover, or to share information about some of our missing people. One of the groups I joined was Macomb County True Crime Stories. I wanted to join that group so that I could share information about a new push in the 1979 disappearance of 12-year-old Kim King. She was last seen in Macomb County. She lived most of her short life in Macomb County. It seemed fitting to be in that group. While I was in the group, I came across a post about the Krausneck murder. The post was short and to the point. Quote, was the Krausneck murder ever solved? Well, I went looking for Krausneck and Michigan, and honestly, I couldn't find a damn thing. So I kept looking, and I found the Krausneck case in New York State, near Rochester, New York. Then I learned that the victim, Kathleen Krausneck, was from Mount Clemens. In fact, she was Mount Clemens High School, class of 1970. Kathleen's husband, James Krausneck Jr., was from St. Clair, Michigan. And to be clear, he was from St. Clair, not St. Clair Shores. His dad, James Sr., owned Krausneck Carpet and Drapes in Mount Clemens. The store was a staple in Mount Clemens for decades. If you grew up in the area, you were probably familiar with it. High school sweethearts, Jim and Kathy, seemed like a golden couple. They both attended Western Michigan University, and they became engaged in the fall of 1973, when she was a junior in college and he was in graduate school. Their wedding was a lovely affair in the late spring of 1974, and everything seemed just right. They were young, attractive, educated, and in love. They came from good families. They went to the same high school, they had the same friends, and in high school, James was an athlete, while Kathy joined the French club and earned a spot on the homecoming court. In 1974, the newlyweds moved to Colorado so James could work on his doctorate, a degree that he did not complete. Then they moved again to Lynchburg, Virginia, 
so James could work as an associate professor of economics at Lynchburg College. The job wasn't what he expected, so the small family moved yet again, the third move in less than seven years. This time, they have a new baby in tow, and they're relocating to New York State. James has a job as an economist at the Eastman Kodak Corporation. It looked like New York was the real deal. This, this was a place they could put down roots that they could settle in and be happy. So now it's 1981, and the couple has a toddler daughter, Sarah. She is the bright spot of their family, and they both adore their little blonde daughter. They even purchased a house, a 2,000-square-foot colonial on Del Rio Drive in Brighton, New York. It's a lovely, sunny house with three bedrooms and an attached garage, and it's on a treed lot. And their new home was just six miles from the Kodak Tower in Rochester. And I want to be clear, there is a Brighton, Michigan, and a Rochester, Michigan, and the Krausnack family bought a house in Brighton, New York. This setting is in the state of New York, not in Michigan, even though the city names are very similar. So the house they bought in Brighton, it has a sordid history, and we're going to come back to that later on in the episode. But from the outside, everything appeared well. They have a lovely home. They're a beautiful family. James is smart and has a good job at Kodak. Kathy is pretty, she's well-liked, and she's a good mother. Kathy had earned a degree in occupational therapy from Western Michigan University, but in the winter of 1982, being a wife and a mother was her full-time job. So in the fall of 1981, the family settled in, and they, of course, came back to Michigan for the holidays to spend time with their families. And then they rang in the new year, but all was not well in the house on Del Rio Drive. What was going on in their relationship? Well, that depends on who you ask. I've heard that there was conflict in the marriage because James had not successfully completed his graduate studies. He had not earned that PhD, but he had told Kodak that he did have a PhD so he could get the job with them. Again, I can't confirm this, but this is what I'm hearing, that their marriage was in trouble and that neither one of them were particularly happy. They loved their daughter, but their marriage was not in a good place. Again, back to rumors that James was controlling, that he diminished Kathy, that Kathy had her own worries about their financial stability. If James lied to Kodak about his credentials... She did not want to move yet again to further her husband's career. And February 19th, 1982 started like any other day. James got up early, he took a shower, he got dressed, and he left for work before 7 a.m. He worked his usual day, arriving home about 5.30. When James got home, the house is dark. And once he enters the house, he finds signs of a disturbance in the dining room. There are valuables on the floor. When he looks around, he can't find his wife or his daughter, and he notices that one of the windows is broken. So he goes upstairs, and he can hear Sarah, and she's in her bedroom. So he scoops up Sarah and goes looking for his wife, Kathy. And he finds her in the most horrifying way possible. She is still curled up in their bed, under the covers, with an axe buried in her skull. 
her body is cold. So James grabs onto Sarah, holds her to his chest, and runs across the street to a neighbor's house. It's 5.57 p.m. Police mobilize immediately. They find the house much as James described it. On the floor in the dining room, there's a silver set. The back of the house, they find that the door from the porch to the house had a smashed window. And it appeared that a mull, which was found in the garage, was used to break the glass, allowing someone access to the home. Upstairs, it looked as though an intruder attacked Kathy as she slept, burying an axe in her head. And she was killed in one swift blow. Kathy was still under the covers, and she was still dressed in her nightgown when police found her. While police swarmed the house on Del Rio Drive, they carefully collected the murder weapon because they wanted to preserve any evidence, and unfortunately, they would find that the axe handle had been wiped clean. It's really strange if you think about it. They plunge the axe into her head and then wipe the handle clean while it's sticking out of her. So that night, James is interviewed by Brighton Police, and they talk to Sarah, who's about three and a half, just for a couple of minutes. Police wanted a child psychologist to talk to Sarah, and James said that was fine, and then he immediately left with Sarah for Michigan and did not make her available for an interview. Within 48 hours of the murder, James and Sarah are back in Michigan at his parents' house. And listeners, I don't necessarily find this suspicious. If my spouse was murdered, I would want to be close to my family for support. According to a March 8, 1982 story in the Port Huron Times-Herald newspaper, Brighton Police Chief Eugene Shaw said that his department had three limited interviews with James, one interview on the night of the murder, and they spoke with him twice more over a two-day period in Michigan in the presence of his father, James Sr. Lieutenant Gary Printy from the Brighton Police, he was one of the officers who flew to Michigan to interview James about the death of his wife. And speaking of Brighton, New York, Chief Shaw told the press, quote, We haven't had a burglary in nine months. I've been on the force 30 years, and we have never had a burglary with violence involved in it. I can't explain what happened right now, but eventually answers will surface. Listeners, Chief Shaw is a wise man. Answers would surface, but we're going to have to wait several decades. So in 1982, attorney Michael Wolford represented James. And now today, 37 years later, the fall of 2019, Wolford is again talking to the press and advocating for the innocence of his client. And that's why we're here today, talking about this case. If you've listened to the podcast previously, you know that I have a real affection for these old, old, unsolved cases, the ones that are dusty and haven't been looked at in a while. That's what I like writing about. And when I learned about this case, I really wanted to cover it because there is so much here. A young mother, a child left alone with her mother's body all day long, signs of a break-in, but really nothing stolen the handsome widower from a good family who won't cooperate with law enforcement. What the hell happened in that house? My curiosity was piqued. 
And in the summer of 2019, I would guess this was mid-June, I reached out to police in Brighton, New York, because I wanted to cover Kathy's case. Fortunately, the chief called me back while I was at the hospital with a friend who was having surgery. So I only had about 90 seconds on the phone because her surgeon came out to talk to me. So I had to get off the phone and he and I scheduled another call via email, but I ended up missing it and I couldn't connect with him. And I'd sent messages to Kathy's sister and didn't receive a response. So I was like, okay, I'm not covering this right now. And I put the case aside. I had other stories to work on, and I figured that Kathy's case would be here when I was ready. And I even wrote her down for February of 2020 because the anniversary of her murder seemed like a great time to feature her case. And then the first week of November, I heard the news. James Krausnack Jr. rested for the murder of his wife, Kathy. And I was so excited about this. Um... You know how I feel about old cases, and to find out that a case that was almost 40 years old had an arrest was thrilling. So let's talk about why they arrested James and why now. And let's start this conversation with the understanding that James Krausnack Jr. has the presumption of innocence. Know that the evidence in this case was reviewed again starting in 2015 when the Brighton chief of police, Mark Henderson, learned of a cold case initiative through the FBI's Buffalo, New York field office. Then, there was a May 2016 story in the News Tribune paper reviewing the case, and in that story, they said that evidence was being looked at again. And as to the evidence they have, my understanding is that the murder weapon an axe taken from the garage of the home was wiped clean. Police also found a sock at the scene, which was used as a makeshift glove to handle the maul, which broke the window in the back door off the porch. The maul and the axe both came from the Krausnack home. This is how the killer or killers gained access to the house. And I find it funny that a burglar would arrive at the house and fail to bring any of their own tools making them rely on what they might find at the scene. Inside the home, they find items disturbed, like the silver set on the floor in the dining room. And if other items were stolen from the home, that information has not yet been made public. So they have a broken window, the silver set on the floor, the axe, the sock, the mall, and additional evidence that we're not aware of. All of this evidence is tested because they wanted to find DNA that did not belong to James, Kathy, or Sarah. And obviously, you would expect to find DNA from the three of them. This was their home. They would have touched and handled things inside of their home. But on this cold February day, the story is that an intruder came into the home, killed Kathy. So you would expect to find DNA from that intruder. And my understanding is there was no foreign and no unexpected DNA on these items. Also, the autopsy of Kathleen was reviewed by experts who determined that based on the condition of her remains, she was likely killed before James left for work at 7 a.m. And there's two things to note about this. 7 a.m. in February, it's dark out. So, hypothetically speaking, 
If James walked around the outside of the home and broke the window on the back porch using the mall from the garage, it would be hard to see him. Also, the house on Del Rio Drive is on a large lot situated where the road curves. They have only a neighbor behind them and on one side, so it's relatively private. And I would imagine that in the course of their investigation, Brighton police spoke with people at Kodak, people who knew James, people who worked with him each day. Very curious how his co-workers described him, how they described his demeanor and actions on the day of the murder. I don't remember seeing anything in the press from the people at Kodak. If they had opinions on his behavior leading up to and on the day of the murder, none of it was made public. Not long after Kathy was killed, James Jr. took Sarah and moved out west. He would remarry, and at this writing, he is married to his fourth wife, and the couple divides their time between a 3,000-square-foot home on Mercer Island in Washington and Arizona, where his now-married adult daughter lives with her family. It was in November of 2019, just days before I recorded this, that James Krausnack Jr. was arrested and charged with the murder of his wife Kathleen in 1982. Now, the News Tribune that we mentioned earlier, they reported that immediately following his arrest, the Krausnack home on Mercer Island was put on the market. And I am curious, if nothing else, so I looked up what recently listed homes are going for. Stuff that was listed in the last 30 days on Mercer Island, and the least expensive house was $1.5 million, and prices climbed up to $2.5 million. So it seems that in the decades after the murder of his wife, James did quite well for himself. A couple of points to consider. Sarah Krausnack, Kathy's daughter, recently told police in Brighton that she welcomed renewed interest in her mother's case. And when her father appeared in court, Sarah was there with him, as was his wife Sharon. Now, remember, this is a developing story, so things can change, they can be walked back, or they can be expanded upon. And I expect changes, updates, and new information to come out in the weeks ahead. But now, we wait. Oh, I wanted to mention one more thing. I told you that the house, 33 Del Rio Drive, had a sordid history. Just three years before Kathy was found with an axe in her head in the master bedroom of the home, in April of 1977, there was another tragedy in this house. Dr. Anthony Shafino, age 69, and his wife, 70-year-old Estelle, lived at 33 Del Rio Drive. And one evening, Estelle came home, parking her car in the garage, as was her practice. Apparently, she didn't turn the car off. Carbon monoxide fumes filled the home, killing both Estelle and her husband. Their bodies were discovered by Anthony, the couple's only child. Interestingly, tragedy was not done with the Shafino family. In 1979, the historic Avon Inn, which was owned by Anthony and his wife Carolyn, it caught fire, causing significant damage to the structure. Now, I've not heard of any other deaths, be they tragic accidents or horrific murders, at the house on Del Rio Drive, and we will be watching the Krausnack case carefully. 
If you're curious, there are many photos of the house inside and out available on Zillow if you want to have a look. If you're on Facebook and enjoy historic crimes, consider joining the Macomb County True Crime Stories group as they post a wide variety of stories from the past 150 years. Meanwhile, let's keep the family of Kathleen Schlosser Krausnack in our thoughts. Her parents, her siblings, and her daughter, they could use some love and kindness to get them through the next several months. And did I mention that her parents, who are both about 90 years old, are still alive? Yeah, they're still around. They lived long enough to see an arrest in their daughter's case. Is there something that interferes with your happiness or is preventing you from achieving your goals? If so, BetterHelp Online Counseling is there for you. BetterHelp offers licensed counselors who are specialized in issues such as depression, anxiety, relationships, grief, self-esteem, and more. Connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. Anything you share is confidential, and it is so convenient. Get help at your own time and at your own pace. You can schedule video or phone sessions, plus chat and text with your therapist. My BetterHelp therapist was extremely helpful as I navigated the illness and death of my father earlier this year. And if you're not happy with your counselor, you can request a new one at any time. No additional charge. Best of all, it is a truly affordable option. And for Already Gone listeners, you get 10% off your first month with discount code GONE. So why not get started today? Go to BetterHelp.com GONE. That's BetterHelp.com GONE. For our second case, we're in Ohio, the little town of Jackson. Jackson is located due south of Columbus, Ohio, and east of Cincinnati. In fact, it's about 30 minutes from the city of Chillicothe, which you may recognize from the 2016 Investigation Discovery television series, The Vanishing Women. Now, this case is from the early 90s, and it's a baffling and distressing murder. When the episode began, I told you that both victims we discussed this week were mothers. Both had a young daughter at the time of their murder, and both women were 29 years old when they died. Also, these murders occurred in places that a person should be safe, where a person should feel secure and protected. Kathy Krausnack was murdered while she slept in her own bed. Jill Holzbach? She was murdered at a police station. In 1991, Jill and Jimmy Holzbach were the parents of a four-year-old girl. The couple had been together for eight years and married for a few of those. Jimmy loved his wife. He said that her youth kept him young. Jimmy was a Vietnam veteran who came home from the war with his own issues, including brushes with the law. He is the first to tell you that he was no saint, but he's also no killer. Now, Jimmy is about a decade older than his wife. He's 40 to her 29 years at the time of the story. And rumor has it that Jill was stepping out on Jimmy, spending time with an old boyfriend. And Jimmy will tell you that, yeah, it was true. But Jill was ending that relationship. It was over and she was going to focus on their small family. The two of them were committed to making their marriage work. Jill's boyfriend, the man she did see and did have sex with in the hours before her death, 
He told police that things were fine between he and Jill, and that when she left him that evening, she was in good spirits and headed home. In reading coverage of this case, it is implied that while Jill was not happy with Jimmy, their daughter, four-year-old Jenna, loved her daddy, and that made a split more challenging. Jill didn't want to break up the family. Also implied is that she told Jimmy what he wanted to hear and that she had no intention of breaking things off with this boyfriend. Whatever her motivations were that wet, rainy February night, Jill left Jenna and Jimmy at home, borrowing her mother's car, a 1973 Mercury Comet, and heading out to a local night spot where she likely met up with her boyfriend, the guy she knew from high school. His name was Michael Bednars, and we'll talk more about him in a little bit. Around 10 p.m. on February 6, 1991, Jill Holzbach is driving toward the home she shares with her husband and daughter. But something makes her drive to the police station instead, and she turns the borrowed Mercury into the parking lot of the Jackson, Ohio police station, and she blows the horn. She doesn't get out of her car and run in. She sits behind the wheel and blows the horn. Inside the building, there's a civilian employee, a typist, and she's the only one to notice Jill's arrival and hear the horn honking. This typist looks out the window and sees two cars. She hears yelling. It's a man's voice. Get out of the car. So the typist walks further into the police station where she finds several officers. It's shift change and there are several uniforms milling about. She tells the duty sergeant, hey, there's a domestic out front. He sends two uniformed officers up front to handle it. And when they arrive in the lobby, they don't see anyone. They inform the sergeant who tells the typist that they must have left. And the typist says, wait a minute, not the lobby, out front of the building. There's two cars, a man and a woman yelling. When the officers head outside, they find the Mercury Comet and 29-year-old Jill Holzbach dead in the front seat. She's been shot at close range with a 380 handgun. One of the bullets ripped through her throat, tearing her carotid artery, and another bullet strikes her in the face, exiting the other side of her head. The wounds are gruesome, and the neck wound was almost instantly fatal. The man driving the second vehicle, a car that the typist thought could be a late-model Pontiac, is gone. Murder weapon is gone. There is only Jill Holzbach in the car and the sound of rain falling in the parking lot. There's a lot to unpack here. Someone followed Jill Holzbach into the parking lot of the police station. This person then exited their car and yelled at her to open the door and get out. Jill honked the horn on her car, hoping that an officer would appear and scare off the person who was yelling at her scare off the person who would end her life. And unfortunately, due to a miscommunication and the added complication of shift change, no one came outside to save her. The officers exited the building too late to help Jill and too late to see the make and model of the car driven by a killer. The typist who looked out the window and saw the vehicles heard the shouting. Well, she's not much help. It was dark out, it's raining, she didn't get a good look at the second vehicle. 
It's the early 1990s. A small department like Jackson doesn't have high-tech surveillance on their parking lot. There's no cameras or special lighting. Not like what you would see today. When I started researching this case, I wondered how they didn't hear the horn inside the building, how they didn't hear the yelling or the gunshots. And then I reflected on police agencies that I'm familiar with, where these police agencies are located, the way the building and the grounds are structured, and almost all of them have two sets of doors before you can reach an officer. Then the officer is seated behind a partition for security reasons. The parking spots are at least a dozen feet from the entrance to the building, with the distance and the noise from the rain, plus the conversations taking place in the building at shift change. It kind of makes sense why the typist at her desk near the front of the building was the only one to see and hear anything. When they realize that Jill has been murdered and cannot be saved, they begin looking into Jill's background they learn that she and Jimmy are not getting along. Jill's mother will tell them that she doesn't like Jimmy. Police recall the vehicle description offered by the typist, a late model car, possibly a Pontiac Grand Prix. Well, guess what Jimmy Holzbach drove? A late model Pontiac Grand Prix. Now, Jill was driving her mother's car that evening because the Pontiac was out of service. In fact, Jimmy had taken it up to the local high school so the auto shop kids could make some repairs. Jackson police are thinking that Jimmy left the family home that night, left little Jenna alone while he went to the high school and retrieved the car, tracked down his wife, chased her, cornered her in the police parking lot where he threatened her, yelled at her, and ultimately shot her in the head and neck, leaving her to die in the front seat of her mother's car. It's a compelling theory, but we would need to know what condition Jimmy's Pontiac was in on Tuesday, February 7th, when students went to work on it. If the car can be driven, well, I guess it's possible. But I should mention that Jimmy's car, a 1978 Pontiac Grand Prix, was kept overnight in a garage at Perry High School. In the early morning hours after the murder, an officer swung by the school and checked the car. It was there, right where Jimmy said it would be. The car was dry, hood was cool. It did not appear to have been driven that night. In the hours following his wife's murder, Jimmy was taken into custody. He was interviewed. His hands were tested for gunshot residue. Police collected his clothing and tested that as well. And as far as I can tell, all of this is inconclusive. There was literally and figuratively no smoking gun. No gotcha evidence to bring the investigation to a halt. Jimmy is released, and he goes home to collect Jenna, raise their daughter by himself. Over the next several years, Jimmy and police in Jackson, Ohio, will butt heads repeatedly. He will file lawsuits against them for naming him as a suspect in the murder of his wife. The case will be tossed out. Over the last 30-some years, Jimmy Holzbach has spoken repeatedly about his frustrations with Jackson police, asking that they continue to investigate the murder of his wife. And Jackson police haven't said much about the case, but their position seems clear. It appears they think Jimmy is responsible for her murder. So the investigation into the murder of Jill Holzbach appears to be at a standstill. 
I don't know if Jimmy is responsible for the death of his wife. I do know that he was interviewed by police, but I want to know what he's been up to over the last several years. I mean, we know Jimmy has had his run-ins with the law, but never for anything violent. He wrote some bad checks, receiving stolen property, that sort of thing. And Jill's case really stuck out to me because she did what she was supposed to do, and she was murdered anyway. How many times have you heard If you're feeling unsafe, drive to the police station. And I know that I've done this at least once, many years ago after a particularly scary road rage incident. I drove past my house and headed for the police department, and the angry person following me sped off when they realized where we were. And more recently, when you sell things online, it's recommended that you perform the transaction in the police station parking lot because it's safe there. And listeners, I know things are much different now than they were then. In 2019, it's easy to find a parking lot with good lighting and visible cameras. But I can't help thinking about how frightened Jill was that night and how she went to the police department thinking she'd be safe, that she'd be saved, that whatever her plan was with Jimmy or with her boyfriend, that she would get to see her daughter again and that the events of that evening would be a story she might someday tell her granddaughters. But Jill didn't live through this. And I'm certain that her daughter Jenna tells her own children's stories about her mother. And I wish she could tell them a new story about how the man who murdered her mother 30 years ago, that bad man, is now in jail. And that Jenna and her daughters can rest a little easier now. Over the years, Jackson police had other agencies review the evidence in this case and they felt it all pointed in one direction, but they were never able to make an arrest. But listeners, what about the boyfriend? What about the man that Jill had sex with just hours before she died? If she was breaking things off with him, like Jimmy said, perhaps he didn't take it well. And there was only one person attached to this case who went to prison for violence. According to a 2011 article in the Canton Repository newspaper, Michael Bednar's boyfriend that Jill saw the night she was murdered, he went to prison for domestic violence. He has since been released from prison. And if you're wondering about his alibi the night of Jill's murder, his mother says that he was at home with her at the time of the shooting. If you have information about the murder of Jill Holzbach, please call Jackson Police at 740-286-4100. And listeners, there is just one more episode of Already Gone before I take my winter break. On December 15th, we will look at the life and crimes of Carl Eugene Watts, a prolific serial killer and the only known serial killer to be released on parole. Then we'll be back January 15th, 2020 with all new episodes, including two cases that I've received many requests to cover. Don't forget to check out this week's sponsor, BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com and use code GONE for special savings. You can find Already Gone on Facebook, where we have a page and a discussion group. I regularly post clues about upcoming episodes, as well as news and updates about Michigan and Great Lakes-related crime. You can follow us on Twitter at AlreadyGonePod, 
and on Instagram, which I continue to be terrible at. But if you want to see pictures of my pets, including Theo the giant man cat and our rabbit buggy boy, that's the place. A big thank you to Gray Multimedia for sound editing. Cesare has me sounding my best. Any weird noises you hear during the episode are from me and my inability to sit still. I'm Nina Instead, the writer, producer, and voice behind Already Gone. I appreciate you listening, and please, be safe. <laughs>